This is episode 17 of the CB Northwest and Camp Tadmore events podcast. In this episode, we're going back to Men's Roundup 2004. This is session one with Dr. Rodney Cooper. It's a delight to be with you. You can tell I've got a little bit of a frog in my throat, but we'll get that thing cleared up because uh, nothing's going to keep me from being able to be with you guys this weekend. He's right. You did it last year praying for me, made some corners. Thank God I get to be here with you this week. I'm a redemptive story standing before you right now. So I just praise God for your prayers. Thanks. In fact, um, let me tell you a story. There's a story about four people that are traveling across Europe. They're in a train, two men and two women. Two women are sitting on one side, the two men are sitting on the other side. And they're making small talk as they're going, uh, just traveling across Europe. And let me describe them to you. One's an uh, older woman. You can tell she's been around a while. She's got jewels on. She has pearls on. She's uh, a woman of sophistication. You can tell she's a woman of means. Next to her is a younger woman, beautiful. Looks like she just stepped off the cover of Vogue magazine. Absolutely gorgeous. Across from her is a sergeant major who you can tell he's been through some things but he survived and he's mature and you can you can just tell he's a man who's been around. And next to him is a fresh-faced private who's just gotten out of boot camp and he's glad to be anywhere right now. (laughs) And so here they are just making their way across Europe and making small talk and they come to a tunnel When they get to this tunnel, it's pitch black and nobody's saying a word. And all of a sudden you hear a kiss, then a smack. When they come out on the other side, nobody's saying anything. (laughs) But they all have their thoughts that's going on. The older woman is thinking, isn't it great that in this day and age in which we live, that this young woman would stand her ground, that she wouldn't let any man take advantage of her. That younger woman is thinking to herself, who would want to kiss an old fossil like that (laughs) when I'm sitting here? On the other side, the sergeant is rubbing his sore face, wondering what woman would think that I'd have to stoop so low as to grab a kiss in the dark. I'm beyond that. And the fresh-faced private, he's just grinning from ear to ear, thinking what a crazy and mixed-up world we live in when you can kiss the back of your hand, smack a sergeant major, and get away with it. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Every one of you guys here tonight has a perspective about why you're here. Uh, You all have your own thoughts about what you're doing here. I just want you to know whatever it is before it's all said and done, I hope that we're all on the same agenda and have the same perspective that God has for us when we leave here. I'm also here tonight and want to introduce to you before I go any further, a friend of mine, um, a very close friend. In fact, this weekend we're going to be sharing the pulpit. There's one thing that I've discovered, I don't like to do things alone anymore. I don't think God's called us to walk it alone. I think he's called us to work as a team. And if there's one thing that I have delighted in about being here this weekend is also 
the guy that's going to be with me. This guy and I go way back, 1979. In fact, not only that, he married my wife and I. He's my best friend outside of my wife. He's a great author, has written tons of books. In fact, you'll see some of them on the book table, one in particular that is now doing incredibly well called Six Battles Every Man Must Win. Now, I'm not just saying this because he wrote it. It is absolutely outstanding. But not only that, he's a brother in arms. We've walked together through a lot of stuff. And this weekend, I want not only to be here in terms of preaching to you, but to model for you in some ways a covenant, a team that we work together. And so I'd like to introduce you, as you'll get to know him uh, tomorrow, a guy who uh, you'll hear a little bit more about. His name is Bill Perkins. Bill, would you stand? And he's going to be with us this weekend. There's uh, one more story I'd like to tell you. It uh, has to do with, um, you know, a lot of you guys fly. And I fly quite a bit. And I had an African-American buddy of mine. In fact, I think it was Charles Cooper who told me, another African-American, so we kind of share stuff with one another. He says, Cooper, I don't know if this will happen to you or not, but I heard this story, and I just want you to beware. I said, okay. He says, there was this African-American father and his son that were on a plane, and they were going to their destination. Plane was full, just absolutely packed out. He says, as they got up to their uh, altitude, all of a sudden, the pilot comes on and says, folks, we're losing altitude. <clears throat> and if we're going to make it, we're going to have to dump all the luggage. We're going to have to get rid of everything. We'll reimburse you, but we've got to do that to stay up. Said okay, so they dumped everything, and everything was all right. Well, a little bit later, the planes start going down again. Pilot comes on and says, folks, every once in a while, we're called upon to make sacrifices. In fact, every once in a while, uh, there are things that we wouldn't normally ask you to do but some of you are going to have to jump off the plane if we're going to keep this plane up in the air. And so we weren't sure how to make this fair. So what we're going to do is start at the beginning of the alphabet, and whenever you hear your ethnic group called, we'd like you to head to the doors and jump out. <laughs> well, they start going through A, B, C. Ain't nobody moving. Finally, the African-American son looks at his dad and he says, Dad, this isn't right. A, African-American. B, black. And C, in some people's mind, we're still colored. And the father says, son, shut up. Today, we're Negro. <laughs> That's bad, isn't it? That's really bad. <laughs> Guys, I, uh, I'm here to laugh with you and to be with you. Thank you so much. Let's just have a word of prayer. Father, thank you that we can laugh. Thank you that we can have fun together. Thank you so much for Jesus Christ. I pray right now that the word that is spoken would please your heart and would penetrate the hearts of your men, that we go deep together, and that we would be transformed, not just because we've heard information, but because we've been touched by God. We ask this in Christ's blessed and holy name. Amen. He was an incredible man. In fact, in 1914, nope, that's not where we want to go. Let's go back. Let's keep on going back. 
Let's go back. We're going through this backwards so you can get a sneak preview. <laughs> there we go. He was an incredible man. His name is Ernest Shackleton. Maybe you've heard of him. In 1914, Shackleton wanted to try something that no other man had ever done, and that was to be the first man to cross Antarctica. In order to do so, Shackleton needed a crew, and so he needed to write an ad for the English newspapers. This is the ad that he put in the newspaper. It goes like this. Notice, men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return doubtful, honor and recognition in case of success. I doubt that Shackleton would be writing ad for anybody today. And yet, they said it was like all the men of England turned out to be a part of Shackleton's expedition. In fact, he had a waiting list for men to be a part of his journey. Well, they took off from the South Georgia whaling station in 1914 in a ship called the Endurance. It was a 350 ton monstrosity, hopefully would break through the ice. <clears throat> to their chagrin, they couldn't pull it off. In fact, they stopped near the ice pack. This was a time before they decided to go to Antarctica. They had a little bit of time, and so they decided to play some football. Not real football, soccer. And so here they are out there playing soccer on the ice pack. Now what was interesting about this is as they were playing at any moment or at any time, a leopard seal could come crashing up on one side or a killer whale could come crashing up on the other side thinking that it was a quick meal that they could get a hold of. I would imagine that changed the dynamic of the game just a little bit. Well, the frigid weather set in, and by the 19th of January, you'll discover that the ship was frozen in solid ice. This is the actual ship that they were on. The crew tried for about a week to free the ship, but to no avail. They just floated within the ice for a month and drifted southward. More months passed, and the men huddled in the ship for warmth in the frigid Antarctic winter. In fact, they were there from May through September. On October the 23rd, the ship's hull gave way and began to take on water. Shackleton ordered all the smaller boats, the gear, the provisions, and the sleds lowered to the ice floe. The Endurance had been trapped for 281 days. They camped near the dying ship. On November 21st, the ship went underneath the ice. They decided that they needed to try to get to at least some Antarctic landmass. And in January, they found a solid flow and decided to just stay put on it and found themselves drifting back to the place that they had begun. They were forced on April 9th to get into their lifeboats. And after a couple of days, they were in open water and finally set sail. And on April 15th, 1916, they finally got to some land called Elephant Island. They, this was the first time they had stepped foot on land for 497 days. But when they got there, they discovered that the land was uninhabited and that they couldn't stay there. And they were so far away from the shipping lanes, they discovered nobody would come and get them. This is when Shackleton, a man who had a mission, decided to do something about it. He got a lifeboat. In fact, this is what the lifeboats looked like at that time. And he took a few men with him. 
to go back to the whaling station that they started from 800 miles away. Remarkably, it only took them 14 days to cover 800 miles. In fact, they reached the unpopulated side of the island. They had to trek 17 miles over icy mountains to the whaling station. There they hijacked an English whaler, thinking they could break through the ice and get their men. They couldn't do it. They went back and got a Uruguayan trawler, tried it again. They couldn't do it. They went back and chartered an old schooner, tried again. They couldn't do it. And finally, on his fourth attempt, he used a tugboat lent to him by the government of Chile and made it back to Elephant Island and rescued his men. This happened on August 30th, 1916, almost two years since they'd last seen anybody other than their teammates. And amazingly, nobody perished. They all made it home. 600 days. Every day when Shackleton got up, there was one thing on his mind, one mission to fulfill, and that was to get his men home. Every morning when he got up, it's what he slept, it's what he ate, it's what he drank. It was his mission. It was a power of a mission that kept Shackleton going. It's the power of a mission that kept Paul going when the times got tough. It's what caused Jesus to set his face towards Jerusalem, knowing what waited him there. It's what caused Peter to be crucified upside down and a host of others in Scripture to do incredible things and make incredible impact. The bottom line is, it's a mission that gets a man up and sets him on his way and causes him to do incredible things that he might not ever do. But the issue is, what mission are you fulfilling? Sadly, many of us, if we're not careful, we can end up playing a role rather than living a life. I have found that people who are mission-driven get the most out of life because they know why they're here. In fact, I saw this was interesting the other day when this came up. Oh, that was interesting, yeah. Um, there's some real metaphors in that right now. You know, I want to thank you for that. Thank you very much. Guys, we're going to do this. <clears throat> this is what a father said to a college freshman. Most men 35 and older come to a place where they realize they've lived their lives playing a role they thought would make others happy. And then sometime between the ages of 35 and 55, they realize they haven't lived a life of authenticity. Too often I find men play roles rather than live life. Too often, instead of fulfilling a mission, it's just survival. In fact, I find that many men are like the guy who is desperate, <clears throat> desperate for a job. And so, he looked in the newspaper, and he found that in the newspaper, the zoo was hiring. Well, he was desperate. So he went to the zoo, and he says, look, I, I need a job. I said, okay, we've got a gorilla outfit over here. Our gorilla died. We can't afford a new one. We'd like you to put on the gorilla suit and go into the uh, gorilla pit and act like a gorilla. He says, you've got to be kidding me. He says, no, 
That's the only job we got. Said, okay, I'll take it. Puts on the gorilla suit, goes out into the pit, starts to get into the roll. In fact, he starts scratching. He starts grunting. He starts doing all the things gorillas do. And he got so exuberant one day that he grabbed the vine and swung across the pit. The vine snapped and he ended up landing in the pit where the lions were at. One of the lions with his hot breath came up and this guy who was in the gorilla suit broke character. He says, get me out of here. Get me out of here. To which the lion said, shut up, you idiot, or we'll both lose our jobs. <laughs> Sometimes... We have to be hammered in life to realize that really what we've been doing is playing a role rather than living the life. Sometimes you got to get into the other pit, really find out that this really isn't what I'm here for. This really isn't what I'm about. See, Jesus had a mission mindset. Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Jesus knew why he was here. It was to save us, but ultimately to glorify the Father. That mission has not changed. God has passed that mission on to us. Because as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. In fact, let me define glory for you. The word glory literally means the manifestation of the attributes and character of God wherever we are and in whatever we do. What that literally means is when you get in your car and you're driving down the freeway, you have the opportunity to display how God drives a car. The manifestation of the characteristics and attributes of God are seen in the way you handle yourself. When you go home, and we are with your family, when we are with your wife, when you're with your kids, you have an opportunity to display to them the characteristics and attributes of God, of how God deals with family, of how God deals with kids. When you're at work, you have an opportunity to display and manifest the characteristics of God, to show people wherever you are of how God does the job. And whenever they see you, they see glory. They see the glory of God. And when they see you, they see the manifestation and the characteristics of what God would look like in doing that. It's a simple mission. It's the only mission. And every day when we wake up as men of God, the first thing that comes to our mind is, what am I going to do today when I do it that's going to show what God looks like in the process? That's why we're here. And you know what I've discovered? I've discovered that a man who knows what his mission is to glorify God, that there are certain characteristics about that man that stand out. What are the characteristics of a man with a mission mindset? What are the characteristics of a man who really knows what he's about? Because you see, if there's one thing I've discovered, a man who has a clear mission mindset has a clear direction concerning his life. He has clear guidelines for decision-making. 
He can clearly lead others. And finally, he is more like Jesus because his life is purpose-driven. See, when I think of a man who basically had a mission mindset, the man that I think about is a man by the name of Caleb. You'll find him mentioned in Joshua chapter 14, verses 6 through 15. In fact, when you look at Caleb, you see all the characteristics of a man with a mission mindset. In fact, there are seven characteristics, and I'm going to take the word mission and break it down for you, each one representing a characteristic. You see, when you look at Caleb, if you think 600 days is a long time, think about 14,600 days or 40 years. Caleb was one of the original 12 spies, as you know, to lead a covert operation into the land of Israel. Imagine now that for the next 45 years, you're going to see your friends and even some of your own family die for the lack of some people around you who wouldn't fulfill the mission. But you don't give up. You've been through wars. You've seen your wife die. You've raised your kids. Somehow you don't give up. If there's one thing that I found with Caleb is that every morning when he got up, he knew what he was about. In fact, the first characteristic of a man who has a mission mindset is the fact that they are motivated in their lives because they know the value of the mission and the urgency of the mission. We have no time to waste. Every day is an important day. In fact, when you go to verses 10 and 11, it says, Now then, just as the Lord promised, he has kept me alive for 45 years since the time he said to Moses, while Israel moved about in the desert. So here I am today, 80 five years old. I'm still as strong today as the day Moses sent me out. I'm just as vigorous or motivated to go out to battle now as I was then. Think about it. Every day when he got up, it was like a brand new day because he knew his mission. In fact, the word motivation means to act, an incentive, a need, a desire that propels you onward. Caleb's body may have been in the desert, but his heart was in Canaan. Caleb was able to endure the trials of the wilderness because he knew he had an inheritance. In fact, God gave him vitality in the midst of a bunch of whiners and a bunch of complainers. And if there's anything that God doesn't like, it's whining and complaining. It's supposed to be hard. That's why we trust in God. But I find it interesting that every day he got up, he knew that today is my mission is to get my inheritance. When I think of a guy who is motivated, I think of a guy who just astounds me, Walt Jones of Tacoma, Washington. <clears throat> Walt is an interesting guy. Walt outlived his third wife, to whom he was married for 52 years. This is what he said. Ten years ago, when I was 94, I told my wife we ain't never seen nothing except the beautiful Pacific Northwest. She asked me what was on my mind, and I told her I was thinking about buying a motor home, and maybe we could visit all 48 of the contiguous states. Walt hadn't had his motor home but a few months, and his wife had only been buried for six months, when he was seen driving down the street with a rather attractive 62-year-old woman at his side. Walt, he asked, 
Yeah. Who was the woman sitting by your side? Who's your new lady friend, Walt? To which he replied, well, yes, she's my lady friend. Lady friend, Walt, you've been married three times. You're 104 years of age. This woman must be four decades younger than you. Well, he responded, I quickly discovered that man cannot live in a motor home alone. <laughs> he says, well, I can understand that, Walt. You probably miss having someone to talk to after having a companion all these years. Without hesitation, Walt replied, you know, I miss that too. Two, are you talking hanky-panky? Well, what if I am? Walt, there comes a time in a person's life when you got to knock that stuff off. Why, he asked. Well, because that kind of physical exertion could be hazardous to a person's health. Walt considered the question and said, well, if she dies, she dies. In 1978, with double-digit inflation heating up our country, Walt was a major investor in a condominium development. When asked why he was taking his money out of a secure bank account and putting it into a condo development, he said, ain't you heard? These are inflationary times. You've got to put your money into real property so it'll appreciate and be around for your later years when you really need it. How's that for positive thinking? In 1980, he sold off all of his property. People thought Walt was cashing in. He assembled his friends and quickly made it clear that he was not cashing in his chips, but he'd sold off the property for cash flow. He says, I took a small down and a 30-year contract. I got four grand coming in until I'm 138 years old. <laughs> Why did I tell you that story about Walt? Walt had a mission. He lived to be 138. And every day when he got up, he knew what he was about. His mission was temporal. Our mission is eternal. In fact, when I look at this particular passage, it always reminds me of really why we're here. Paul put it well when he said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there's in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Gentlemen, we are the spiritual ETs in this world. We are resident aliens here. This is not our home. We're just passing through. In fact, the bottom line is, is that I find out that the more stressed we are about this life, it's pretty clear that this is where we're putting our hope for life. We have to come to the recognition that this isn't all there is. In fact, we are living for a greater inheritance and heading to a greater place. And yet what bothers me is I have to ask the question is, well, how much is enough? What is the mission that gets me up every day? What is motivating my life? Well, the bottom line is we are spiritual nomads. And because of that, we do the best we can. But when it's all said and done, this isn't where it's finished. You see, I find that a man on a mission is motivated 
But there's a second characteristic of a man who has a mission mindset. I believe the second characteristic of a man who has a mission mindset is the fact that they live life intentionally because they want to fulfill the mission. In fact, it's interesting when you look at this particular passage, the word wholehearted is used four times in this passage. If you'll find it, in fact, in verse 7, where he said, but my brothers who went up with me made the hearts of the people melt with fear. I, however, followed the Lord, my God, wholeheartedly. You know what the word wholehearted means? It means to be completely obedient, totally sold out. In fact, it literally means one who intends to finish what they've started. To complete the task like Jesus when he said, it is finished. You see, one of the things that I've found is partial obedience is not really obedience at all. It is merely convenience. In fact, Eugene Peterson put it well when he said this. Our attention spans have been conditioned by 30-second commercials. Our sense of reality has been flattened by 30-page abridgments. He goes on and he says, It is not difficult in such a world to get a person interested in the message of the gospel, but it's terrifically difficult to sustain the interest. Millions of people in our culture make decisions for Christ, but there's a dreadful attrition rate. In our kind of culture, anything, even news about God, can be sold if it's packaged freshly. But when it loses novelty, it goes on the garbage heap. There's a great market for religious experience in our world. There's little enthusiasm for the patient acquisition of virtue. Little inclination to sign up for a long apprenticeship in what earlier generations called holiness. God wants us to set the example that no matter how tough it is, we intend to finish what we started. A man, a man who is wholehearted, is a man who's motivated, he's a man who's intentional. But there's a couple other characteristics that follow right on that. They are stable and steadfast under pressure because they want to fulfill the mission. Remember what it said? He says, I stuck to my convictions regardless of my peer pressure, regardless of the people around me. You know what I've discovered about a man who really knows his mission? Things don't rattle him. He's stable. He's settled. He's like a gyroscope. No matter how much you turn him around, he ends up standing straight back up. There's a centeredness to his life. When people look at him, they go, man, he's not losing his head like everybody else. Why is that? Well, when you know that this isn't all there is to life, there's nothing to really panic about. Plus, like E.T., we do phone home once in a while. See, gentlemen, I find that a man who is stable is a man who, as it says in Joshua chapter 14, I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to explore the land, and I brought him back a report according to my convictions. In fact, let me go to the next one. But because my spirit, servant Caleb, has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land he went to, and his descendants will inherit it. You know what that means? It means that when you are stable and settled, you pass on that same calmness of spirit to the people around you. That they tap into that. 
And that gives them a sense of focus as well. We've just had a bunch of hurricanes come through Florida. There's another one coming. There's a TV news camera crew on assignment in southern Florida filming the widespread destruction of Hurricane Andrew. In one scene amid the devastation and debris stood one house on its foundation. The owner was cleaning up the yard when a reporter approached him. Sir, why is your house the only one standing? How did you manage to escape the severe damage of the hurricane? The man replied, I built this house myself, and I also built it according to the Florida State Building Code. <laughs> when the code called for two by six roof trusses, I used two by six roof trusses. I was told that a house built according to code could withstand a hurricane. I did, and it did. I suppose no one else around here followed the code. You see, what you build with, you live with. Gentlemen, every day it's incredibly important to know we're hammering nails into our lives. We're stabling the foundation. And when people look at us, when the storms come, and everything around us is falling apart, we stand. Because we're stable. We know what we're about. We know where we're going. We know why we're here. I find that a man on a mission, and with a mission mindset, is motivated. He's intentional. He's stable. He's steadfast. There's another I. He's inspirational. I'm implying this from the text. Let me ask you something. When you see somebody in the midst of struggles, hanging in there, doesn't that confirm you that you can hang in there? Now, when you see people standing strong, doesn't that want you to stand strong? When I hear that Burt Downs is keeping the faith, that makes me want to keep the faith. That makes me want to stand strong. That makes me want to hang in there. In fact, it inspires me. When I think about a guy who's inspiring, there's a story about a guy by the name of Terry Fox. In fact, when you think about Terry Fox, at 19, he discovered he had a very fast-moving form of cancer. He could either surrender to the disease or he could say he wanted his life to make a difference. He began to have a vision to raise money for other cancer victims. He came up with this idea, the Marathon of Hope, to raise a million dollars. He had a vision to run across Canada. The problem was he had to have his leg amputated from his knee down. And so he had to have his lower leg replaced with a prosthesis. But that didn't stop him. Terry Fox determined he was going to run away, and he began the Marathon of Hope. Less than 150 days, he made this run almost a marathon a day. And when he finished, he raised $24.5 million. Here's a man who recognized that if he could do that, it would inspire the people around him. Gentlemen, when people look at us, they see the glory of God, the manifestation of the characteristics and the attributes of God. Does that mean we're perfect? Absolutely not. What it does mean is that it's on our minds. It's on our lips. It's the first thing we think about. It's how we go approach living life. 
because there are people that need to be rescued and we're out there to help rescue them. Oh, another characteristic of a man who has a mission mindset is they are overcomers in the obstacles of life because they depend upon the author of the mission. Gentlemen, let's face it, Christian life is impossible. That's why it's supernatural. In fact, look at this. Now give me this hill country that the Lord promised me that day. You yourself heard then that the Anakites were there and their cities were large and fortified. I love the buts in scripture. But the Lord helping me, I will drive them out just as he said. It's only by God's power. I grew up on a 500-acre farm. And one of the things I loved to do on our farm, an activity that I enjoyed immensely, was eating. <laughs> we ate well. And my, my mom and my sister, they could cook. But my one sister, she made this incredible pizza called kitchen sink pizza. She put everything in it but the kitchen sink. Well, one morning, she needed some mushrooms to put on the pizza. Well, it rained hard the night before, and frankly, we like to sometimes pick mushrooms just out of the field. So she said, Rod, if you want any of my pizza, you're going to have to go with me and pick mushrooms. I said, not a problem. So I got my little dog, and we headed off to the back 40. We climbed over this five-foot fence, and we began to pick mushrooms. Now, it dawned on me all of a sudden that we were in the very field where a 2,000-pound bull lived, and 40 of his buddies. And I began looking around. Well, I didn't see him anywhere. I thought we were okay. My sister said, well, Rod, you need to go to the top of the hill to finish out your bucket. I said, okay. Went to the top of the hill, and what I feared most happened. There was that 2,000-pound bull and all of his buddies, and he was looking directly at me. At least I thought he was looking at me. What he was doing was looking at my dog. My dog and this bull had had a run-in before. And they didn't like each other. So the bull begins to paw, snort, and shake. And all 2,000 pounds of him was upset. My dog began to growl and snarl and shake. And all 30 pounds of him was upset. <laughs> and me, I was just shaking. That, that's where I was at. In fact, they wondered where the black guy went because he turned white about that moment. And... And so I'm looking around for support from my sister, and she's gone. She's climbing over the fence. She sees what's happening. When I turn around, the bull charges. We take off. Carl Lewis couldn't have kept up with me that day. We're flying through the field. Here I am with the dog behind me and the bull behind him and his buddies, all of us running through the field. I come, and I look up, and I see this five-foot fence. And I don't know what happened, but it was like I was possessed. All of a sudden, this power came over me. And I leaped with everything I had. And I made it over the fence. The dog went under the fence. The bull almost went through the fence. <laughs> but we survived. And I told my sister, I will never eat another one of your pizzas again. <laughs> if you were to ask me right now to go out and jump a five-foot fence, just to go jumping right now, there's no way. But I've discovered that God has put within me something called adrenaline. And whenever I'm in tough spots, God lets that adrenaline loose in my body, 
that allows me to do things that I normally couldn't do. Well, I just want you to know as men of God, you may have bulls that are chasing you right now, problems that seem insurmountable. You may have five-foot fences that are in front of you that you think you can't climb. But when you trusted Jesus Christ, God put some spiritual adrenaline in you. He's called the Holy Spirit. And when you hit those tough times, when you have to climb those fences, when you have to jump them, when you have to run, God has given you everything you need to be able to do everything that he's called you to do because he has infused you with himself. We can overcome the obstacles. We can manage them. Because with his help, we can drive them out. I've discovered that God does giants. He can deal with them. But there's an end. There's one more. You know what I think keeps a lot of men from fulfilling the mission? I think it's regrets from the past. I think it's stuff that they're dealing with that they just don't seem to be able to get over and wonder if they can. I just want you to know that a man with the mission mindset, you never have to look back with regret because Jesus died for that. You have a future and you have a hope. I found that men on a mission don't focus on what's lost. They focus on what's left. That's how they operate. In fact, if you look at verses 13 and through 15 of that passage, you'll discover that not only did Caleb inherit the land, but he passed it on to his descendants. When you have a mission mindset, you are passing on a mindset to your kids, to your friends, to the people around you. You are passing it on. One of the things that uh, I love to do, and I don't know why, is I love to play golf. In fact, every time I go out and play golf, I find that my prayer life increases incredibly. <laughs> oh, God, not over there. Please, not over there. Oh, Jesus, please, not now, not now. And when I play with my friends, we have two sets of rules. We've got real golf, and we've got fun golf. Real golf is where every stroke counts. You hit it where it lies. No matter what you do, no matter where you are, every stroke goes on the card. But fun golf, that's a different story. Fun golf is when you can use a hand wedge when you're in the sand. Woo, man, look at that, wow. <laughs> fun golf is when you use a foot wedge to get a better lie from where you are. You know the best thing about Fun golf, mulligans. It's like it never happened. You get to start again, it doesn't go down on the scorecard. Wouldn't it be great to have mulligans in life? You're flying down the highway, you hear the red light, you see the red lights and hear the siren. Officer pulls you over. You look up the offers, he writes the ticket and you said, Officer, I, I think I'll take my mulligan today. Wouldn't it be great if your bank account's overdrawn 
and they call you up from the bank and said, we're going to give you a mulligan. We're going to put $500 in your account. It's like it never left mulligan time. Wouldn't that be awesome? Wouldn't you like to have a mulligan for every time you said a crossword or did something that you wish you could take back? Every day, God gives do-overs. He gives mulligans. Fresh starts. The enemy would like you to think that every stroke counts. But God, every day, his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. And some of you this weekend could use a mulligan. Good news. You got it. I like what Paul said in Philippians. He says, not that I've already obtained it, but I pressed on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I don't consider myself to have taken hold of it. I'm in process. But one thing I do, forgetting what's behind and straining for what's ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Paul always lived in the present. The past was gone. He had a future and a hope. Men, if there's one thing that we know is our mission is to glorify God. That is to be the manifestation of the characteristics of God wherever we are and in whatever we do. And I find that a man who wakes up every day and that's his mission, that he's motivated, he's intentional, he's stable, he's steadfast, he overcomes obstacles, and he never looks back because he's been forgiven. We can do this. God has commanded us, he's called us, and he's equipped us to do it. Jim Rome put it well when he said, let others lead small lives, but not you. Let others argue over small things, but not you. Let others cry over small hurts, but not you. Let others leave their future in someone else's hands, but not you. There are some missionaries that were coming back from Africa. They'd been there for over 20 years, planting churches in obscure villages. They happened to be on the same particular boat Teddy Roosevelt was on, who was coming back from a hunting expedition. When they were pulling into the harbor, they had all these banners out there. Welcome home, Mr. President. Hope your hunting went well. Celebrating. One of the missionaries, the man, said, can you believe this? We've been toiling in Africa for 40 years. Nobody's got a banner out for us. Nobody's welcoming us. Nobody's telling us how great it is. To which his lovely wife nudged him and said, honey, you're forgetting one thing. We're not home yet. You're not home yet. So complete the mission, and you will glorify God. Amen? Amen. God bless you, men.